Amen. We are going to now dismiss the kids. You can head downstairs to the Gospel Project down there. Pray that God uses uh, His Word to change you guys this morning. Well, we've done a lot already this morning, right? Whew, full service. Let's go eat. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm not. You're right. <laughs> I'm actually very, very excited about this morning. We have jumped back into our series on Romans, and uh, we are now in Romans 9. Last week, Mike spent uh, our time in the Word of God in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, and this morning we are going to head into one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture, Romans 9, verses 6 through 13, which is why Mike and Ethan and Brandon all went to D.C. this weekend and left me here with you. Um, I'm excited about it. God ventures through his word to speak to us. And my prayer as we open the scriptures this morning is that that would be weighty for us. I know it has been for me this week as I've approached this passage. And in this passage, we see God actually lean down through his word to talk to us about why he does one of the most fundamental things that he does in election. And uh, I pray this morning that we feel the weight of that. So let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word. That you would speak to us. That you've spoken through the Bible. That you, the God of the universe who created us, who loves us somehow, have, have spoken to us and let us know who you are, what your attributes are. In our humanness and in our finite brains, you have ventured to reveal yourself to us, even if it is in small ways. You've revealed yourself to us so that we can know you and we can worship you. You've opened our hearts and our minds to allow us to understand And God, I pray this morning that your word would do something in our hearts that would cause us to worship you more, that would cause you to be glorified in all of your glory, that we would see you as glorious as you are, that through your word our affections would see more clearly your glory and those other things of this world would become more dim, that your... uh, Love and your glory would be more bright in the things that distract us and and pull our affections from you would become more dark. Do that in our hearts this morning and in our minds through your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. We're going to read that together as I open to my notes here. Um, If you have a Bible, that's great. Take a look at it. If you don't, it will be on the screen um, in front of you. And if you have a Bible app, go ahead and use that too. But uh, let's read Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise 
are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord, amen? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever, amen? And I want to tell you that is why we venture to dive in on Sunday mornings to preach the Word of God, because long after us, long after renovation, long after Mike Maisie, Jeremy Kelly, anybody else, the Word of God stands forever. Amen? Amen? And that is our goal, is that God's name would be made great, and that His Word would be preached, and that it would shake us and change us, that we would not bring what we think to the Word, but that we would conform to it, and let it teach us how to be and live and understand. And that's our goal this morning. What an amazing passage we see in Romans 9. Uh, we see, you know, one of those things that I think, um, as I set this up a little bit, um, begins to shake some of our Western Enlightenment-drenched thinking. You know, it's interesting. is we, when, when you're born and, and we, we come into the world, we don't, in a vacuum, begin to set up the way we think about things, do we? It's not like we begin to re- do all the foundational thinking of why we do this or why we do that. Um, you know, as you look back at the history of philosophy, and, and, and I break my own rule, um, the rule really should be that people who have taken one semester of philosophy should never talk about philosophy. Um, but in breaking my own rule, I'm going to talk about it. You, you guys like Descartes sat around for years just pondering the fact that he existed and came to a conclusion that he exists. Uh, you know, some of those things we take for granted. We, we, we are born into a worldview. We are born into a way that people think about things, what they decide is true and isn't true, and, and how you come to those conclusions. And we just kind of adopt it as babies, and as we grow up, we adopt a particular worldview. And, and, and our enlightenment-drenched thinking and the way that we think about things, this passage really bothers people. It really does. This passage really shakes up our humanness, our desire to be in control, our desire to, in and of ourselves, determine things and to determine what happens. And it really, really shakes up to our core. And, and I anticipate as we talk through what the Word of God says, you may feel a little shaken this morning. You know, one of those things we think about when we discuss God's sovereignty and God's election and free will is we think, in our enlightenment kind of brains, we think, well, it's either or, right? Um, either what I choose and decides determines what's going to happen in my life, or God decides everything and he's in control of everything. And, and what I submit to you is centuries of people and other cultures outside of Western civilization, they don't have a problem with this. And they don't think that way. Paul did not think that way. The idea that our choices have significance and we make decisions and we make choices and we determine things and the idea that God is in control of everything and his purposes will stand not because of what we choose but because he's in control of everything and, and our choices don't thwart his purposes. Those are not in contradiction with each other. 
but they bother us, right? Here we see a picture of who God is and how he does things that my prayer is would cause us to worship, amen? So here we are in Romans 9, and Paul is formulating his argument, and he's continuing an argument. We, we just saw in verses 1 through 5, as Mike preached, that he was lamenting um, Israel. He was lamenting his, king, his kinsmen, and even to the point that he was saying that I would be separated from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen, this idea that he's heartbroken over the state of Israel and their rejection of Christ. And he's making an argument that, yes, God spoke and first revealed himself through the people of Israel and his promises. And you saw the patriarchs, the prophets, and all of those came through the people of Israel. Um, Israel as in Israel in the flesh. And you're going to see two different kind of Israels here. But he's proclaiming now that children of promise must come through Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a child of promise and will be saved. And, and so the question that Paul's answering from the people of Israel in terms of the flesh is, well, then has the word of God failed? So if, if God came to us and brought the, the, the patriarchs, the forefathers, the prophets, the word of God was revealed to us, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Moses, if all of that came through us, then has the word of God failed now that we have to come through Christ? And it's not just because we're born in the flesh, Israel, that we're now saved. And Paul's answering that question. And he's saying, no. It's not that the word of God has failed. Let me go back to the beginning and explain to you that that was never the case. That's Paul's argument here. Are you following me? You're going to have to walk with me in this. It's, it's, uh, get your thinking caps on. Get your pens out. This is going to be something we have to walk through together and break it down. Paul's argument is, listen, Israel in the flesh, those born Israelites, the idea that because you were born of Israel in the flesh, that that would mean you were saved, has never been the case. Let me go back. And the first example he gives is Isaac and Ishmael. And if you remember this story in Genesis 21, right? God comes in Genesis to Abraham, and he says, you are going to have a son. And Abraham says, I'm 86, and my wife is barren, right? So that is, that is who God comes to, an old man and, and an older woman who is beyond childbearing years. Not only is she barren, and has she been barren through the years which she would be able to have a child, but she's postmenopausal. So we're talking miracle baby like Mary miracle baby, right? She, she is beyond childbearing years, and God comes and says, you will have a son, and I'm going to cause your wife to be, become pregnant and have a son uh, and do a miracle, and through your line, through your seed, all of the world will be blessed. And then what does Isaac do? I'm sorry, what does Abraham do? He does what many of us do. We say, all right, thanks for the promise, God. I'm going to take this into my own hands and figure it out, because I don't see how it could happen, right? And so Abraham and Sarah have a conversation, and Sarah says, well, I have a handmaiden here, Hagar, who is still in childbearing years. You, you, um, have a moment with her and, and have a baby with, with Hagar, and then we'll get this thing done, right? Human resourcefulness. I'm going to pull this off. God, thanks for the promise. Let me make it happen. And legally, that may have been okay for him to, to know Sarah's main handmaiden and have sex with her and then have a child. Legally, that would have, would have potentially been, been okay. But in God's mind, he was declaring to Abraham, you are going to have a child of promise, and that promise is going to come miraculously through my hand, not through your own human resourcefulness, right? 
So Abraham has a child with Hagar, who's Ishmael. And then 13 years later, think about that. We flip through the scriptures and think it happened the next day, right? God made good on his promise when Ishmael was 13. Sarah becomes pregnant, and Isaac, the miracle child, the child of promise, is born. So Paul's making this argument. He's saying, listen, just because you are of the seed of Abraham in the flesh doesn't mean you're Israel. For I chose Isaac and not Ishmael. I picked Isaac and not Ishmael. It didn't have to do with being born in the flesh. It had to do with my choice. I decided the child of promise was going to be the child that came through my miracle in my hand and not human resourcefulness. There was nothing Abraham could do to, to create the child of promise. God created the child of promise. God did it in his counsel, in his will, in his choosing, in his sovereignty. He decided that Isaac would be the child of promise and not Ishmael, not human resourcefulness. Amen? So we see Paul's argument here. He's going to them and he's saying, the word of God hasn't failed. It was never the case that because you were Israel in the flesh that you were chosen. It was always God's choice, God's sovereignty. So he says in verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed, but not all who are descended from Israel. Now, if in your Bible or in your mind, circle that. Israel in the flesh belong to Israel, this different Israel, Israel in the spirit. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Not because they're his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So that's his first example. He goes on to another example. And we see him now go to Jacob and Esau. Look at this with me. For this is what the promise said about next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. Verse 10. And not only so, so he's continuing his argument, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Paul continues his argument. First we have Isaac and Ishmael child of the flesh, a child that can be born by the powers resident in human beings, or a child of the promise, a child that's born by God's intervention. And he distinguishes child of the flesh and child of the promise. And now he continues his argument. He says that true Israel is the work of sovereign God creating children out of what no human being can do, right? True Israel is the sovereign God creating children, not of what human beings can do, but out of God's work and his, and his intervention. That word there, he says that, that he was counted as a child of promise, reckoned, decreed to be offspring. Paul's saying not everybody that's flesh is decreed, counted as offspring. 
but it was the child of promise. He moves on to Jacob and Esau. Now this is interesting because I think the argument from an Israelite could be, well, Hagar was not Sarah, right? I mean, Abraham had a child with Hagar, so that's why he's not the child of promise, and, and, and Sarah's the one who conceived Isaac, and so that's why Isaac is the child of promise. And so Paul furthers the argument, anticipating what they may say, and he goes to Jacob and Esau. They're twins. Jacob and Esau are roommates, right? They're... <laughs> That was a Becker joke right there, yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <clears throat> Here they are together in the womb. Does it get any closer than that? Neither one of them have done anything good or anything bad yet. God chose Jacob over Esau. Twins are not born yet, haven't done anything good or bad. God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Then it says, not because of works, but because of him who called. It was said, the older will serve the younger. Why did God do this? Why did he choose Jacob? Well, the verse answers it in verse 11. So that God's purpose according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So we see some insight into the sovereignty of God. We see some insight into God's purposes. We see some insight into the reality that our God's purposes will stand regardless, that he has a plan, that he has a purpose. God, in this verse, we see that God gives up a view into why he does something that's eternally fundamental as unconditional election. We see God's purpose. His, when it says God's purposes, it's really, this is not a word, it's, it's adjectival. It's, maybe it is a word. It's an adjective. And, and the way that the, the language is laid out is it's God's electing purpose. God's electing purposes will stand. That's what it says. Take a look with me, if you would, and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, it's also going to be up on the screen. I want to talk a little bit about this word purpose that we see in Romans chapter 9. And we see similar, a similar word in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Let's read those together. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to, there it is the word, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let me say that again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love, it's a gracious, it's a loving purpose. He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
Jump down to verse 11. Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What powerful passages. So what do we see here in the purposes of God? That, that the predestination of those he would elect happens before the foundations of the world. That, that he calls and he, he predestines and then he calls. And, and he does this for his purposes. And we would ask ourselves, what is his purpose? What is his purpose? You see it twice. You see it in verses 4 through 6 and you see it in verse 11. To the praise of his glory is his purpose. That he would be glorified. That he would be praised. In him, verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. Man, is this a struggle for us as we think about who God is. We get insight into the sovereignty of God. We get insight into into the way that God does things so that he would be worshipped, so that to the praise of his glory. And we see that he works all things. Man, in our finite American brain, that's tough, is it not? This is, this is a struggle, that God works all things. But what about me? What about what I do? What about what I determine? What about my choices? And we see in the scripture, rising from many passages, under the context of the sovereignty of God, our choices do matter, our choices have impact, but in the scope of eternity, we see a sovereign God who is in control of all things, all things to affect his purposes to the praise of his glory. What an amazing God we have. There is free will. It is the free, sovereign will of God. Now, now that we struggle with that. So, so what, what I do doesn't matter, right? And, and honestly, some of the questions that arise from reading this passage, Paul asks in the very next verses, and I promised Bernie I would not preach on them. So if you want to know the answer to what's bothering you, read 14 through 18, because Paul answers it very clearly, very clearly. Tim Keller tells a story of an old book that, you know, the Twilight Zone and Star Wars and Star Trek and many other movies have based this particular theme on, and there's been a lot of movies that follow this particular theme, but it's an old book. And it's about a man who creates an illegal time machine, right? And we, as we ask these questions, we start thinking, does what I do matter? Who's in control? What's, you know, where is my free will interplay with the sovereignty of God? And I love this particular story because you see a man who creates an illegal time machine. And in this illegal time machine, um, he would let, allow people to pay him money to go back in time. And a particular character in the story pays a bunch of money so that he can go back in time. And the man instructs him who created the time machine, he said, when you go back in time, you're going to see a, a path that's about six inches off the ground. And I'm telling you, do not step off the path. And the guy says, why? He says, if you step off the path and even step on one mouse, that mouse could be the great, great, great grandfather of a thousand other mouses 
who birthed a million other mouses, who birthed billions of other mouses. And, and for every 10 mouses, a fox dies because it has nothing to eat. And foxes upon foxes upon foxes would die. And then, then lions who are looking for food would not have, would not have any food and, and, and the foxes would be dead. You step on a mouse, you could, a mouse, you could crush the pyramids. You step on a mouse, Rome doesn't rise. You step on a mouse and everything could be changed. Right? Tim Keller tells another story in the context of this. And he says, he says how did I get here? He's, he's preaching about the sovereignty of God. And I love the story. As opposed to adopting my own, I'm going to steal his because I think it's hilarious. Tim Keller says, I, I planted this church in New York City. How did this happen? He says, well, because I became a Presbyterian who was very interested in planting churches. How did I end up at that church? Well, I went to a school where I realized that I believed in Presbyterian theology and I listened to a particular uh, uh, professor who caused me to join the Presbyterian church. Well, how did I listen to that professor? Well, he was a British professor who was coming over to the States to teach at Tim Keller Seminary, but he had a snag. And that British professor could not get through customs. There was, there was issues with him coming from England to the U.S. to teach. Well, how did that happen? Well, the dean of the college was, was on his knees praying that this particular professor would come and that they could solve this problem of his immigration coming from England to the United States. And when he was praying, he was praying with one of his students, who happened to be Gerald Ford's son. And when he prayed with that student, Gerald Ford's son, he said, you know what, I think I know somebody that can help. <laughs> and he talked to the right people, got the immigration issue solved. Well, how did that happen? Well, Gerald Ford's son had the power to do that because his father was president. Well, how in the world did Gerald Ford become president? Well, Richard Nixon resigned. <laughs> Otherwise, he would have never been president. Why did Richard Nixon resign? Because the knuckleheads that broke into Watergate, into the DNC to bug the offices, one of them left the door open. And the night watchman saw that the door was cracked and realized someone had broken in. And Watergate scandal broke and Richard Nixon had to, dis had to resign. So Tim Keller's conclusion was, if the knucklehead didn't leave the door open two inches, we wouldn't be here today. <laughs> <laughs> If we believe in free will, apart from our understanding from Scripture of the sovereignty of God, it would be the worst gift God could ever give us. I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Every decision in my sinfulness that I made determined what happened in my life. I can rest in the reality that my sovereign God is in control and his purposes will stand. Amen? God is a sovereign God. He is in control. His purpose will stand. Does that mean my choices don't matter? No, it doesn't. Does that mean my choices determine everything? No, God determines everything. How does that work? You know what? God's in control. J.I. Packer calls it antinomy. It's an apparent contradiction. It's not a contradiction. We know that light moves in waves and it moves in a straight line. Do we know how it moves in waves and how it moves in a straight line? No. It's an apparent contradiction, but it's not a contradiction because it works. We just don't understand it. God is sovereign, and God is in control, and God chose Isaac, and God chose Jacob because it was God at work in the womb of a barren woman who was beyond the ability to give birth, and he caused the miracle child to happen. And in the same way, before the foundations of the world, he chose you because you're a miracle child of God. Nothing you did determined it. God said it, and that's why it happened. Amen? 
God's in control. Why? Because his purposes will stand. Why? To the praise of his glory. Amen? Paul continues his argument. He says, not only were they in the womb before they did anything good or bad when God chose Jacob over Esau, he goes on to say, and it's not by works. Why does he say that? Just in case someone raises the argument and says, well, maybe it's God's foreknowledge of Jacob's good works after he's born that determines that he's choosing Jacob. No. God's purposes are not thwarted by what we do and what we don't do. He, he destroys that idea. And he says, not only is it that they didn't choose anything good or bad yet because they're still in the womb, it's also still not by any works that they do. God's in control. God's purposes will stand. And the decisions of human beings do not thwart his purpose or decide his purpose. God does not look upon the caverns of, of history. He does not look through the tunnel of time and then learn something from us and then decide what to do. That is not what the scripture says. God's purposes stand because he decides. Not by works, but by. Now this next phrase should be surprising to us. I mean, you can go into um, several passages where we see this not by works, right? Not by works um, in Galatians, but by what? We're justified, not by works, but by faith. And at least three or four different times we see you, you are justified not by works, but, but by faith. Not by works, but by faith. Not by works, but by faith. But God, or Paul here is arguing about God's choice in election in, in the counsel of his will, as we saw Ephesians. It's the counsel of God that decides who he chose before the foundation of the world. And that's why here we see you are, you are chosen not by works. Jacob was chosen not by works, but by, not by faith. By him who calls. Yes, you are justified by faith. I'm justified by faith. It's conditional. We need to believe in Christ to be justified and declared not guilty. But our election before the foundation of the world is not by faith. It's by him who calls. He chose us not because we believe. He chose us so that we can believe. So what we see here is regeneration precedes faith. God moves in the hearts of people so that we can believe and trust in Christ and be justified and declared not guilty. What a gracious, sovereign God. Gracious, sovereign God. We're not finally decisive in turning the will of God. God alone is decisive. To the praise of his glory, according to the kind intention of his will. So we see all election, all predestination, all calling, all redemption is according to his purpose for the praise of his glorious grace. So God's purpose is to be known and enjoyed and praised and seen and savored and sung about as infinitely glorious in his free and sovereign grace. Amen? Amen remarkable as those 
Now, now there is a lot of other thoughts about this passage, and I didn't want to spend our time today refuting other ways to interpret this, because I don't think they're even close. So, if, please explore it. Please listen to it. Sproul, R.C. Sproul does a phenomenal message on this, and he spends the entire time refuting what other people think about this passage. But what I see here is a reason to worship God. What's interesting to me, just practically, as an application point, is most of the church, the theologically astute church, that has been brave enough to dive into the depths of what God says about this, sometimes represent that element of the church that are called, what, the chosen frozen, right? <laughs> they stand and stand and, and you don't see affections displayed. As I ponder this, well, let me just say this. In 1995, my buddy handed me a book called Chosen by God. And I read it. And I laid awake for a year and a half. <laughs> and then I came to a place where I relinquished what I would call my sinful desire to control my destiny. And I let go. And I began to recognize the depths of the glorious grace of God. In this particular principle in the passages of Scripture has caused more affections and more worship in my heart than almost any other. This is the basis by which we sing to the praise of His glorious grace. And we should be of those that, that worship harder, worship longer, sing louder than any other because of what God has done and His love for us and His sovereign grace. He's, he's, he does, His purposes are so that He would be known, so that He would be enjoyed, so that He would be praised as glorious, free, and sovereign grace. John Piper says it this way, this purpose is according to election. It is an electing purpose. Listen to this. If God did not elect unconditionally, he would not be free. He would not be sovereign. And he would not be glorious. If our choices could thwart the purposes of God, he would not be who he is. He wouldn't be free because men would determine their own election, not God. He'd be bound. God would be bound to conform to our own self-determination. He wouldn't be sovereign because instead of doing successfully what he wants most, he'd be thwarted again and again and again and again by determining men as they make choices. He wouldn't be glorious because God's absolute freedom, his freedom and his sovereignty are the essence of the glory of his grace. Why we worship him for who he is. So we see in verses 11 and 12 that it's not because of works. So that God's purpose according to election would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. Because of him. It's decided not by us, determined not by us, but only in the counsel of his will. His purpose of election will stand because of him who calls. What a good God. It says at the end, to illustrate the point, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That makes people cringe, does it not? 
God hated? God hate. Does it mean that he loved less, maybe? No, it doesn't. It means that in the scope of his sovereignty and unconditional election, he moved in the heart of Jacob and he passed, passed over Esau. As we see illustrated in the Passover, we still see illustrated throughout Scripture. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. What we see is that God moves in the hearts of those who before the foundations of the world his, he purposed to choose. And he does that in a way that we become able to understand and to believe and to have faith and to be justified. And you ask, well, what about those who he doesn't? I don't know. What I know is what the Bible says. I know that my two and a half cups of electric pink and gray putty between my ears do not grasp the purposes of God completely because he's bigger than me. And if I understood everything about him, I'd be bigger than him. Right? He is a big God. He is a gracious God. But he is a sovereign God who is in control of all things for his purposes to the praise of his glory. Amen? Now you may ask, well, then is God unjust? Read verses 14 through 18. We'll see you next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible sovereign grace. You give us a little insight into who you are and how big you are. You give us through your word a little insight into your sovereignty and your graciousness and your love and your decision and your purposes. And yet you say as we move through our linear world in time, we make choices, we make decisions. And God, we, we depend on you, we worship you, help us to obey you and to serve you in those choices, resting in the reality that at the end of the day, you are in control of all things. You say in Romans 8 that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And we see that in our lives. As we look hindsight back into our lives, we see your hand. We see your sovereignty. We see your control. We see in your word, Joseph, who in this particular town cries out for your help, and you're silent, and he's taken into captivity. We see many, many years later, Elijah in the same town cry out for your help, and you answer, and you send chariots of fire, and you wipe out the armies and rescue him. In your silence and in your activity, your purposes stood. Had Joseph not been taken into captivity, thousands would have been lost to famine. He wouldn't have rose to lead Egypt and rescue his family. We see in the scope of our world and in your choice, you are in control and your purposes stand. And we declare this this morning. We trust you. You are a sovereign God. In the moments when we struggle the most and we don't know and we don't understand, we can stand on your word and know that you do, that you know, that you understand, that you are at work, that you are sovereign, 
and that you love us. And we are grateful to have a sovereign God who is so much bigger than we are. And we worship you to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, everybody said.